how are we supposed to behave in a way that is spontaneous and free but doesn't harm others? Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. This is part two of our interview with Shozan Jack Hobner, whose writing has won a Pushcart Prize and has been published in the New York Times, Tricycle, The Sun, The Best Buddhist Writing Series, Lion's Roar, and other publications. His first book, Zen Confidential, Confessions of a Wayward Monk, was chosen as one of NPR's best books of 2013 and won an Independent Publisher Book Award. His new book is Single White Monk, Tales of Death, failure, and bad sex, although not necessarily in that order. Here's part two of the interview. All right, we are back with part two of our episode with Shozan Jack Hobner. We're not going to go through the whole parable again because Jack made such a mess of it in the first episode that I, <laughs> I don't want to put everybody through that again. No, I'm just kidding. It would be repetitive to do it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Let's jump back in. And so I want to start with, I can't help but bring it up, particularly since you included it in your book and you made it fair game. So Leonard Cohen was my dream guest. He was the guy I wanted most on the show. And it's funny, I think I mentioned that to you and you told me, well, good luck. His his uh, monk name is Great Silence. And that sort of made me realize like, okay, this probably isn't going to happen. But you, you talk about Leonard Cohen in the book because he was a fellow monk at the monastery. Yeah, that's correct. He's actually a monk before I was there. Um, so he, he took lay ordination, which meant he wasn't living full times on the grounds when when he was ordained. Then he kind of ducked out of his very 
busy, influential life as a, you know, an artist and an entertainer and a writer and a thinker and um, went up to live at the monastery where I lived. And, and this is before my time. He's there for about, I think it was about six years, kind of on and off. I mean, there's a little cabin up there and he wrote one of his albums up there. And so he was a pretty consistent practitioner for maybe, I want to say like 40 years. And he had a very close relationship with my teacher. Yeah, you talk about in the book, you mention how your teacher was very old and you watched Leonard take care of your teacher in certain ways and and how powerful that was for you. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, part of the thing I wanted to cut, the subtitle of this book was Death, Failure, and Bad Sex. And one of the things I wanted to cover, we talked about it in the last uh, first part of this episode, was was failure um, and success. And Leonard Cohen was probably the most um, outwardly successful man I've ever met. Um, I mean, he's a legend, a right. great artist, a, a profound artist. But when he was around us monks, uh, he was one of us. This is not exactly to your point, but we'll get back to your point. Um, it was really helpful for me to, to see that, to see a great artist humbling himself before something that was greater than him. And it wasn't my teacher as a person, or me as a monk, um, it was what my teacher was devoted to and what we were devoted to as monks. A monastery is a great leveler. It was wonderful watching Leonard come into our practice space and uh, throw himself into meditation, just like any of us would. Uh, he never pulled rank because, of, when I was around, he never pulled rank because of his status. That was a great lesson. There's something bigger than our personal life, our professional life, watching him and my teacher, kind of uh, how they related to each other. Oftentimes, they would just sit in silence for an hour, two hours. Leonard would be sitting on the couch and legs crossed, just kind of looking forward, kind of hunched because I think his back was hurting at that time. He was very diminished physically, so he was kind of this little elfin, gnomic rabbi figure. Yeah. Puckish grin. My teacher, we were always trying to find the right chair for him because he was so old and he's just, the meat was gone in his legs and his sciatic was like a red hot nerve 24-7. So he had this nice chair for him and he'd be sitting in that chair and the two of them would just sit in silence together. Every once in a while, one of Roshi would say something to Leonard and Leonard would say something back. It was a really beautiful thing to witness. You say, I'm going to just read again. How do you say his monk's name? Jikan? Jikan, yeah. Jikan. So that was Leonard's monk name. He said, watching Jikan serve our teacher unobsequiously and with intelligence, care, and respect helped take the sting out of my own failures as a writer and as a man. You learn that there is something greater than artistic success when you see a great artist humbling himself before it. I think that's just such a great thing to see. And then you talk about um, that he and Roshi had a a similar project, a shared vision. Roshi taught it, Leonard sang about it, and you describe it as the union of contrary things, and then their separation again and the struggle in between. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That's a big one, but um, the final song on Leonard's final album, which I was fortunate enough to meet with him before he died at at his house, and he played his album for me, and the last song is called Treaty Reprise, and that's referring to an earlier song on the same album. It's called Treaty. And, and in it, Heath Leonard says, I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine. Um, 
Roshi was always talking about the union between, can sound a little bit complex and esoteric, but if we return to that principle of, of relationship and not looking at the world as, as me and you. So let me give you an example. I used to go into koan practice with my teacher and um, you would do your bows before him and then you would give him your koan which he had actually given you. So the koan is a, it's a kind of problem that the teachers presented you with that doesn't have a logical, rational answer. So it's a, it's, a, it's a pretext to get in the room and interact with the teacher and for him to see where you're at and for him to help you um, in your practice. And for a long time, he would shake my hand. That was the teaching he was giving me. Just, just, he'd reach out and, and shake my hand. And at one point, I had this insight um, or an experience where that we were two halves of one experience. And I'd always been looking at myself as being me, separate from the things I'm interacting with and the world I'm living in. I'm just one half of a, a full experience. And I think there's a lot of stuff in Leonard's music and in Leonard's art that is straight out of Roshi's teachings. Uh, Shinzen Young, who's a teacher, I believe, in the of Vipassana tradition, yep. translated for Roshi, uh, many, many years, my teacher Roshi was Japanese and he didn't speak impeccable English. So Shinzen would translate for him at retreats. And um, Shinzen's got a great clip on YouTube. People can look it up where he's talking about Leonard Cohen's song. I think it's Love Itself. And he completely dissects how that song is an artistic version or representation of, of um, my teacher's kind of classic Tataka um, to Zen model. I will definitely have to check that out. I mean, I like Shinzen. We had him on, and uh, I'm going to do that this evening, probably. You go on to say that about Leonard, was he an artist consumed by despair? No, his work was shot through with the opposite of despair. But in Leonard's world, the opposite of despair was not hope. It was clarity. Yeah, that was the sense that I got after listening to his music for a while. There's sort of a schoolboy understanding of Leonard Cohen, um, Actually, one of his reviews, they said, you know, if you buy this album, purchase some razors along with it because you want to slit your wrist. <laughs> right, um, exactly. Which uh, I would argue that's a superficial understanding of yeah. his, his music. I think there's a um, catharsis in how he expresses things honestly and and with heart, especially at the end of his life. Like he had this late career revival, which I which is so inspiring because there's a there's a quality of humbleness to it before something that's so much greater than himself. He uses images from the Bible, as well as his Jewish heritage, as well as his practice with, with our teacher, Roshi, as well as his work with um, uh, Ramesh Balsakar, I think was his name, an, an Indian Vedantic guru. Um, and he's offering us these, these humble poems and songs um, that I think are really subtle spiritual teachings. A lot of times you listen to something and it's later work that sounds like a love song but if you if you sit with it and contemplate it he's he's actually i think speaking to issues that are a lot bigger and principles that are a lot bigger than just a personal life love with a capital l kind of thing yeah and i love what you said there with you know that it was clarity because i've never been able to explain why or what it is about leonard cohen that i find hopeful and inspiring because again at a superficial level it's it's construed as depressing but there's a there's a clarity um 
or uh, something that shines through it that I've never really been able to put into words. I think that's about as good as as I could do. You know what what you said there, and it's just it is it is powerful stuff. And and I loved just knowing you know his life in Zen and all that was fairly well known, and and his humbleness. Um, you know, I I got to see him on one of the tours, and it just was magical. I mean, he really was a, a special person. Yeah, he really was. And he gave everything he had to those tours. And I remember him telling me that without his Zen practice, he could have never done it. And I kind of got it, you know, in Zen practice, you're just throwing yourself into these intense retreats and, you, you know, you do things you didn't know you could do, you know. And, and he said his practice really gave him um, power and a desire to give back, um, just give fully to his, to his audience. I got that sense. I mean, just one last point. You were talking about the, the clarity and what it what it is that resonates with his music that that isn't negative or nihilistic. And I just want to say, as a man, he always had a smile on his face, and he was always asking the people in the room what they needed. That was my experience of him. Um, so I always got the sense that he had a clear eye that he was looking at society and life with, and he was sort of bringing these insights to us with with a smile and an, and an attitude of generosity and not bitterness or resentment. You can kind of hear that. I mean, it's great to know that that translated into his life, because you could certainly hear it in the music, and there's a sly humor that runs through so much of it. Yeah, he's, he is the funniest songwriter of the last century. Yeah, I'm uh, sad to see him go, but what a, what a good life. Yeah. Let's turn our attention to really what the second half of your book is about, and it is largely about the monastery that you were at and the teacher who was there. The teacher was involved in a, I guess I'll call it a, a sex scandal for lack of a better word. Can you talk to me maybe just a little bit about the the basics of, of what, you know, the facts there? And then I think it'd be, we can go, you know, a thousand directions from there, but maybe just start with people who aren't familiar with that story. Roshi once told me that Zen master is not a saint, but sometimes it's helpful to act like one. Um, one of the things that I was attracted to about him as a teacher was that he never once provided a prescription for behavior for me. So what I took away from that after many years of working with him was, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I'm not going to tell you what's right and wrong. You do what you got to do, but you better believe you're going to have to take full responsibility for it. That was the sense I got from working with him. Uh, the other thing was, uh, he was not a teacher who said sex is bad, ever. Um, it's part of life. And um, if you're married, sex is going to be part of your relationship with your wife and, and part of your practice, if you have a strong practice. So there was no part of life that was forbidden or off the table. question was, how do you practice within all the situations that arise and that you help give rise to in your life? So he had, uh, over the years touched his female students. Um, I don't know how many. I know there there was a large enough number that it was a problem over the years. Um, there was a wide range of responses amongst the women to this touch. And I really discovered that once the scandal finally broke, I discovered how hard it was to, boy, come up with any totalizing ideas about the situation. Uh, ultimately, I learned poorly, but I tried to learn to just listen. You know, one person would tell me something. She would say that Roshi taught her 
a really important lesson about letting go of her ideas of good and bad when he touched her. And she's profoundly grateful and considers him the most important person she's ever met. And then she looked me, looks me in the eye and says, you know, are you going to tell me that experience is not valid? You know, then I have another student come to me and say, you know what? He touched me and it was really horrible. And it turned me off to Dharma and I left the center and I haven't really practiced them since. Are you going to tell me that still tell me that he's a great teacher? So all this stuff came out um, in 2012 when a, when a former monk wrote a blog for a website saying this teacher was doing this touching all these years and I'm blowing the lid on it. And then that story just exploded. It, it hit at a time. I mean, it's exactly like this time. I mean, with Harvey Weinstein right. and now how Hollywood is going through this whole scandal now. I mean, you know, there's something in the air um, that's bringing the, it, it, probably the internet on some level because it gives people who are disaffected a chance to speak up in the Buddhist communities in America. There were many of these scandals. I mean, they are almost the norm, almost a cliche. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they are a cliche. And ours, ours came at a time where the culture really wanted to talk about scandals in Eastern-based spiritual communities. And so, I mean, the story went briefly viral. I mean, it was in the Daily Beast. It was in the Atlantic, I think. It was a big New York Times article about it. Um, and it had a huge impact on our community, and it raised a lot of questions and a lot of issues that a lot of us are still kind of grappling with. <laughs> The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They can Condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf.
Before we get back to the interview, I want to mention that this episode is sponsored by Casper Mattress. And at Casper, mattresses are perfectly designed for humans, engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. And as they say, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. And to create that comfort, Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Now, Casper has three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, all of which are very affordable because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to the consumer. Casper has no hassle returns if you're not completely satisfied, and shipping and returns are free in the U.S. and Canada. So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash one you feed and enter the code one you feed at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's casper.com slash one you feed and enter the code one you feed at checkout. And here's the rest of the interview with Shozan Jack Hobner. We were talking earlier about good and bad and all of that and going beyond those certain things. And, and I think for you, you talk about it being the koan of a lifetime for you, right? The, the Christians ask, how can bad things happen to good people? And then your version of that is, well, how can good people manifest bad things? Or how can this teacher who is so profound in his teaching, so loving and kind to me and other people that I saw also do these really bad things? Like, how does all that come together? And how do you make sense out of that? I mean, I don't think it's new, like you mentioned, to to Buddhist communities. I mean, the, the other classic example would be um, Trunko Rinpoche, right? And the fact that he kind of drank right. himself to death, right? And and I've, you know, I've talked to some people who are students of his who are like, I don't have an answer. <laughs> like, what can I really say? He was a profound teacher, and he had these real problems. And I just find it, it fascinating. It sounds, though, like you are no longer part of that monastery and that this had some role in that. Yeah, that's true. Okay, you just threw out a lot of stuff there. We could, we could have an episode <laughs> three unpacking all of it. Um, so two parts. First, first uh, Trungpa inspired me to think of—you're mentioning Trungpa inspired me to think about this. He was an absolutely profound teacher um, and, and supremely gifted, almost probably a genius in making esoteric Tibetan— Buddhist principles totally accessible to Westerners by translating them almost into psychological concepts that we could grasp. Very wild personality. There were certainly instances where he behaved in a, in a way that was surprising to a student, but had a positive impact on them. And let's say that what that way was sexual. Then there could be another instance where he behaves in the same way towards the student and, and it has a negative impact. The question isn't just how do good people do bad things, but how, how are we supposed to behave in a way that is spontaneous and free but doesn't harm others? We have actions from our end, and we never know how they're going to impact people on the other end. And processing this experience with my teacher really it makes me step back a little bit and check myself, um, listen more than I talk, pay attention to the person across from me, because it's really, it's a really, really, really deep question. I mean, what is good? What is bad? What do people owe each other? What is the proper relationship between a student and a teacher? Is it 
the job of a teacher to push buttons? When is the teacher gratifying him or herself rather than pushing that student's button? I mean, they're really, um, they're, they're questions that are not going away. And one of the reasons I wrote that chapter of the book and that part of the book was to talk about it. Um, and I don't, I, I apologize. I can't, I can't bring these issues up without mangling them because they're much deeper than I go. Um, but I think it's important to talk about them because I think it's going to happen again. Uh, there's going to be, there's right out there right now, you haven't told us exactly how many downloads you have, but we assume there's a lot of people listening to your podcast. And, and there's probably somebody out there saying, you know, my teacher is touching me and I'm allowing it to happen. And what do I do with that? What do I owe him? Um, is this something I need to do? Um, I, I think we, I think it's important to talk about these things, especially talk about these things within these communities. So to the second part of your question, one of the reasons I decided to go ahead and share this experience. And I, I tried to just share my experience around Roshi as a teacher and, and my community within the scandal and not speak to anybody else's experience because I got put in my place so many times within our community and the many meetings we had around this issue for doing just that, speaking to other people's experience and interpreting it a certain way. So I thought it was important to write this book. Um, sharing these things uh, made it such that something that I'd been thinking about for a while, ever since my teacher died, um, kind of came to pass, which is that it's probably time for me to move on. And some people were uncomfortable with me writing about these things within our community. And there was a bit of a showdown about it. And I, I made the choice, you know what? A lot of things are coming together in this moment that are telling me it's time to go. And go I did. So now what? Do you have exactly. any idea? You tell me. <laughs> Podcast host. I think you'd be great. I've been thinking about, you know, I mean, <laughs> I bought a car and I drove to Northern California and I hung out by the ocean for a while. Then I house sat for somebody in San Francisco for two weeks. Then I drove across the country and stayed with my parents for a little bit. Uh, met up with a friend, did some traveling. You know, I sat in a monastery for 13 years, actually 10 years in a monastery and three years at a temple, just spent a lot of my time kind of staring at one spot on the floor <laughs> with a soft gaze, breathing in and out. And I've really been enjoying traveling and being in the human world again and sweating in traffic and worrying about money and thinking about having a relationship with a woman again and bringing my practice off the mountain and into the world. Yeah. It's a different way to live. It's certainly, I'd like to get some time on the other side of it. You know, I've, I've always thought, you know, I'd love to live at a monastery for a period of time, but yeah, it's kind of in your book, you, you sort of describe it as both exciting and terrifying. Exciting and terrifying. Yes. Yeah, it's becoming slightly less terrifying. I mean, I have to preface this all with it. You know, a Zen Buddhist monk does not stay a, in the monastic training center forever. So um, the path is to go to do your training. You start out as a student, then you become a monk and you shave your head, you take tonsure, you get a new name, you get your robes, and you begin to... Initially, when you're just a student, you're taking responsibility for yourself and your practice. When you become a monk, you're beginning to take responsibility for the context that the practice takes place in, and you have specific responsibilities depending on your role. And the environment is teaching you to step out of yourself and to begin to take responsibility for things around you and to treat them the way you would treat yourself. And eventually, you have to go off the mountain, out of the monastic environment, and and they call it... Um, in the ox herding pictures, which is a famous Buddhist parable, you, you're in the marketplace again. Mm -hmm. uh, you're the a man with no rank. 
living um, and manifesting the Dharma in the, quote, real world. Well, I'll certainly be interested to see where it takes you. I assume writing will remain a part of it. Indeed it will, yeah. Let's talk about an interesting story that you tell. I can't remember it exactly. You're mentioning that you were with, I believe he was a Christian teacher of some sort, and you guys start talking about demons. Does this ring a bell? That was when I was sick with pancreatitis, and I, I left the monastery for several months. The longest I'd been away, I had to go on Zonka, which means you're officially leaving the monastery. It wasn't easy, but I had to go. And I was um, in Hartford, Wisconsin, uh, staying at my parents' place. And there's a nice, interesting, beautiful church called Holy Hill out, out there. And it's kind of this bucolic setting with a church perched at the top of it. And I kind of ran into a priest there. And yeah, he had some interesting words of advice. I'm, I'm not sure what exactly you're thinking of. Well, I thought it was interesting that he talks about, you know, fighting demons and that you're asking him, like, well, how do you fight these demons? And he says, how should I know they're your demons? Yeah. Then you go on and you, you say, and I, this line, it goes back to the wolf parable a little bit, this idea of not ostracizing the bad wolf or caging the bad wolf, but you, you cannot defeat your demons for they thrive on the fight itself. Yeah, it's like an addiction. You start, I mean, sometimes you manifest the demons, like when you're really angry and filled with a sense of self-righteousness, right? You know, they overtake you. Other times you're pushing them away and trying to ignore them and they, and they come back stronger. Um, the practice that I learned was just you let the thoughts and feelings arise. You don't hold on to them. You don't push, you don't push them down. You let them come and go like the weather. But that has been my experience is that Oh yeah, like your little demons, your little inner demons, they're just looking, they're just, they're just looking to mix it up. You know, they're just looking for that energy, that aggressive energy to pull you in. It's like, it's like trolls online. <laughs> this is what your <laughs> demons are like. If you engage, if you engage with them, that's, that's all they need. No matter what you put out there, they're going to twist it to their advantage and pull you in deeper. So your demons are like your inner troll, inner online trolls. Yeah, I I think that's great. I think it's this, and it's what you said a second ago about, you know, meditating and letting thoughts and emotions come and go. It's I'm getting a real taste in my own life about how much resistance causes me pain and keeps me ensconced in that sort of very small sense of self. And it's a realization I think I go through at a slightly deeper level every year. I'm like, it's just all about what I'm resisting. And then I seem to forget that for a while. And then, but I just, I think Shinzen Young is the one who has uh, put it into equation, you know, suffering equals pain times resistance, you know. That's pretty beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And I just more and more, like, I just recognize that, like, it is my resistance to what's happening that is really responsible for the vast majority of my suffering in life. And yet, it's a hard thing to let go of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's very subtle, but I mean, my my feeling is, uh, you know, the teachings tell me that you don't re if you resist it, you're in trouble. You have to make relationship with with your life, and there's going to be painful things in your life. And the key to not suffering is not to reject the pain, but but to somehow make relationship with the situation that you're that that you're in. I mean, my my teacher talked about. Um, Hear this quote that you know the true monk is the person who makes it their business to make the two mutually opposing activities. So the activity of living, living, and the activity of dying, the activity of good and the activity of evil, both completely their content. I sit with that a lot. 
because much of my suffering arises from life being a certain way and me resisting it, fighting it, trying to change it, wishing it was another way. Yep. And then there's the, you know, feeling bad about myself because I resist things and, and on and on and on. Let's uh, talk about, you, you refer to yourself, I think, as a middle manager of the middle way, which made me laugh. Um, I, I love the idea of the middle way, and I think different people have different interpretations of it. But talk to me about what the middle way means to you. Well, I mean, it relates specifically to this model that my teacher taught, again, where, you, you, you know, the self isn't fixed or solid. You've got an inside and there's an outside, and you give yourself completely to the circumstances that you're in. And that doesn't necessarily mean like you give your, you write a check to the Zen Center for all your life savings or something. I mean, we're not necessarily talking about traditional, say, Western Judeo-Christian notions of giving, but if you're sitting there doing your dishes and you want to go check your email instead, maybe you just give yourself to the feeling of the plate in your hands the activity of scrubbing the mull off your um, dishes. So the middle way is collapsing the distance between self and other, dissolving that distance, and the two come come together. It's not picking one thing or another, you know? Um, the, the mind is like a pinball, and it's just bouncing from one thought and idea to another. And when you give it what it wants, it wants something new. Um, so you're always chasing things when you just obey your that little dog inside you that's always yapping. The middle way for me is the practice of dissolving that sense of self in complete giving. And my mentor taught me there's two ways you can give. You receive or you initiate. So my teacher would, was manifesting this principle when he would shake my hand. Because when you think about it, when you shake a hand, you're reaching out, you're initiating, and you're receiving their hand. So the two halves are becoming one. And the sense of self is dissolving in a, in a sense of we, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, you, se- you separate, and now you're, you're separate again. So you can't stay in that unity or that connection symbolized by the touching of the hands. You can't stay in that heaven realm forever. You've got to come back to the world. My Roshi used to say, you know, there are no toilets and no restaurants in heaven, you know? <laughs> so the messy part of human existence is the eating and the shitting is beautiful, the middle way, we don't reject the human world, and we don't attach to the heaven world. It's the middle way, right between the two paths. Just like the Buddha, who, historical Buddha figure, he lived the life of a glorious prince. I mean, you, you read about his early life, which is somewhat apocryphal and somewhat mythical. You, you read about his early life, and it was like he was living at a combination between like a Hugh Hefner mansion meets uh, a cultural center or something. I mean, he had all the pleasures that <laughs> he, he was wanted. He a Kardashian. Uh, he was a Kardashian, basically, <laughs> with, like, yeah, with like a super high IQ or something. He had everything you could possibly want, power, right. money, sex, talent, but he didn't find happiness there. So he threw all that aside. He went into the um, forest and he starved himself. They said if he, touched it, if he touched his belly, he could grab his spine and he was so thin. And what he found is his ego survived that experience as well. So his ego was fed by the life of being a Kardashian, and his ego was fed by the life of being a spiritual renunciate. So he decided to practice the middle way, right down the middle between these two extremes. As this show has gone on, I think more and more that has become the teaching for me that I just see it in, in so many aspects of life that, like you say, that 
right down the middle of the two opposites. It's not a mediocrity. It, there's just a wisdom in rejecting the extremes. Um, although I'm drawn to them in a certain way, I certainly think that they led me astray many times, and I can see so much of human suffering coming from being at one extreme or the other. In a lot of ways, my work at the monastery actually brought me to a certain extremes, and then I was able to relax. Okay, I went there. You know, and then I go to an opposite extreme. Okay, I went there. Sometimes you actually do have to go to the extremes yep. in order to find, find the middle way. I mean, that's another thing we can learn from the Buddha's life. You know, it's a path. I mean, he didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what? Middle way. I mean, he had to go to the extremes, you yep. know? It brings me back to what I was thinking, talking about earlier. I mean, you can do, do what you have to do in life, but, but you'll have to take responsibility for it. And gradually, maybe you mature and ripen and develop and realize it's not so interesting or, or sexy or profound to chase the life of a Kardashian. Maybe it's just a different version of ego gratification if I chase a purely spiritual path that completely rejects the world and says it's bad. Like, right. Maybe there really is a possibility to wake up right here and now in the present moment, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what situation I'm in, whether it's standing at a line at Trader Joe's, you know, and part of you wants to, I mean, I'm speaking from personal, but I want to get on Facebook and on my phone. And if I'm going to do that, maybe I do that, but, but bringing a quality of attention and focus to it and waking up in the present moment instead of chasing pleasure or spiritual success. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead. He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. In the last episode, I promised ayahuasca. So, oh boy, we're not going to go into the whole thing. You got involved in that uh, at least at one time, and people can read the book, and it's not not really a big deal. But what I'm going to talk about though is one of my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the book, where you're describing this friend of yours who he says, you know, he insists that the plant has no side effects, but I have noticed at least two very troubling developments since he started doing these ceremonies a fondness for t-shirts with howling wolves on them and a tendency to sign off his emails with love and light. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> it just I think cracks my me up. That sort of sums up my feelings about a lot of the um, Americanization of the ayahuasca practice, which actually runs many, many, many millennia back and is very deep taking um, anthogenic 
or hallucinogenic plants as part of a ritual and part of experience. And, and I did take ayahuasca a few times, more out of curiosity than anything, and found it to be a very, very interesting experience. Um, and we, boy, that would be a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, it's not something I'm pursuing um, as a practice. It complements practice in interesting ways, and I think I needed to jolt. After 13 years of Zen monastic life, I wanted to try something a little bit different. And that, you know, I mean, when you're in the Zen circles, that those circles inevitably overlap with the ayahuasca circles because people with spiritual practices outside of the conventional traditional practices in America tend to meet each other. Yeah, we had a guest on Spring Washam, who's part of the Spirit Rock teaching community, who also leads ayahuasca retreats in Peru. And we were just talking about how like the controversy that she's stirring up with that. And it's just an interesting, and oh, yeah. you're right. You, you do come across these same sort of circles and, and it's, it's interesting discussion. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very interesting discussion. I mean, I wouldn't recommend ayahuasca to anyone, at least not in the same way that I would recommend Zazen or meditation, although I wouldn't necessarily even recommend that if people find it and they want to do it, I think, you know, go for it. I, for me, it was very interesting, very profound that I'm still processing it. You know, when you take a plant or ingest a substance that changes your mindset, the temptation is to fall in love with that change and to fixate and attach to it and start projecting um, all kinds of stories around it. And none of that is Zen by any stretch of the imagination. But I also think that in a lot of Zen communities, there's a kind of uptightness about (laughs) ayahuasca you know, then, then people can be a little bit anal retentive sometimes. And um, I'm not saying that, that, that ayahuasca is part of Zen practice or even my practice, but it, it was very interesting as a Zen monk to participate. I mean, I went to Peru and did it three times there. Um, I did it two times in another context, and I don't know if I'll do it again. But, you know, to participate in an in a ancient spiritual shamanic ceremony in, in the jungle as a Zen Buddhist monk, I would not take that experience back. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely, you know, everybody's got to find what, what thing works for them. And to save myself getting into lots of trouble, the one you feed is not officially endorsing taking ayahuasca or not taking ayahuasca. <laughs> there you go. So there save, you go. Save, save the comments. I get it. Anyway, right. thanks, Jack, so much for coming on, for doing two episodes with us. I highly recommend Single White Monk Tales of Death, Failure, and Bad Sex. It's funny. It's spiritual. It's it's a great book. Nice work. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. It was really fun to come talk to you again. It was definitely fun to talk. So thank you for doing it. We'll talk again. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and thanks to Casper Mattress for supporting this episode.